mandate to consuming firms uh, and, and have public interest provisions as recommended in the first panel. Uh, if we're not going to remedy the methodological sleight of hand uh, that animates the Commerce Department's proceedings, uh, then simple common sense demands that we seriously consider and effectuate the reforms of panel three. So our speakers include Peggy Clark, who's counsel at uh, Blank Rome. Uh, she's also an adjunct professor of trade remedies law at, G at GW Law. Louis Leibowitz, a partner at Hogan, um, Hogan Lovells and uh, chairman of the National Association of Foreign Trade Zones, as well as counsel to CTAC, the Consuming Industries Trade Action Coalition. And finally, uh, Marguerite Trossavan, who's a partner at Joachim, Shore, and Trossavan, and former uh, Deputy Chief Counsel of Import Administration at the Commerce Department. So we're going to start uh, with Peggy Clark. So please come on up here, Peggy. Thanks, Dan. Uh, we're, as we said, we're talking about several different issues. The one that's probably going to be spoken about the most here is the prospective versus retrospective systems of collection, because that probably has the biggest impact. In order to avoid stepping on my fellow panelists' toes, I'm going to mostly just set it up and then talk briefly about some of the other issues. For, understand how our current system works. And we are, I believe, unique in the world on having a retrospective system. There may be one other country, but I think it's really just the US. The way our system works, for those who don't understand, is there's an investigation. Assuming everything is found, dumping is found, injury is found, a duty deposit is placed on imports. One year later, and that's the order, one year later, after duty deposits have been paid on every entry that has come in, companies can be reviewed if somebody requests the review, either petitioning industry, importer, exporter, will be reviewed. And those entries will be reviewed. That takes 12 to 18 months. At the end of that period, a new deposit rate will be put in place for uh, new entries. And the entries that came in in that last 12 months, 18 months following an investigation, uh, immediately following an investigation, will go back and determine the final duty liability. So taking the best case scenario, you have an entry that comes in the day after the order goes into place. One year later, review is requested. Say the review only takes 12 months. Usually they take 18. You've still got two years later before the importer knows what their duty liability is. Now you can have litigation. Litigation can go on for years. It could be five, six, seven, or more before the final duty liability is determined. Meanwhile, the importer has been sitting there not knowing what they owe. And not only do they no not know what they owe, but if the final determination is that they owe more than they paid on the deposit, they have to pay interest that's been accumulating daily since the entry came in. What you have found over the years is a number of importers are bankrupted by this. What you also find, therefore, is when a case is filed, it has a trade, an immediate trade chilling impact because the last thing business needs is uncertainty. You can't, if you don't know what it's going to cost you, you can't make plans. The difference, what a prospective system does is at the time the entry comes in, you know what the duty is. You pay the duty then, it's known. You may be able to revise that later for future entries, but it's known. You create certainty. So that is the big issue, is should the US switch to 
a prospective system. Now, I have to say, I have found with my clients, many of whom are U.S. companies, as they try to explain to their boards the impact of the retrospective system, they end up having to use color-coded charts to explain how long this can apply and every time the rate changes. If, it's, if the amount involved is material, they have, it's an accounting nightmare for them for SEC purposes. How do they determine their reserves? What do they set up? How do they disclose this properly under the SEC when they don't know? Again, that leads to a chilling effect on trade so that even though they're perfectly willing to pay the duty, pay the higher price, play in, within the system, they don't know what's going on. They can't plan. Therefore, they're not going to buy foreign, at least not from a country subject to duties. The other side of this, though, as some of the domestics have found back in the old Byrd Amendment days when the money that was collected was paid out to petitioners, was as importers go bankrupt, those duties don't get collected. As importers disappear, those duties don't get collected. It falls on, they're usually bonded by a surety company, but there's now surety companies that are facing receivership because of outstanding duties. So the money doesn't get collected. That's a disadvantage to the domestic industries. Again, a prospective system fixes that problem. So that's where the debate is going to come. And at that point, I'm going to leave it so that my future panelists can talk more about it so that I don't completely wipe out everything just by having the advantage of going first. Uh, some of the other issues we were asked to speak about are some other concepts that have, exist to mitigate the harm, the more ephemeral harm caused by this, by duties. For example, what was mentioned was lesser duty rule. Now, the concept behind this is, okay, you have injurious dumping, but maybe you have a price difference that's not injurious as well. So why not just eliminate the injurious portion? So if a lesser duty, a duty less than the full price difference or dumping margin that was found, will, let, will eliminate the injury why not just impose the lesser duty? Many countries do this in some form or another. For example, the EU will sometimes do it, and you can see it in their notices. You may see, well, we found this margin, 121% dumping, but really an 8.21% margin will eliminate the injury, so that's all we're imposing. But how it's determined is never transparent. What the rate is, is never transparent, goes into a black hole, disappears. If the U.S. were to impose some sort of lesser duty rule, because we do, you know, whatever you want to say about the U.S. system, it is fairly transparent. It may be irrational at times, but it is transparently irrational. You want to set up fairly strict rules. Therefore, this is one possibility to consider. Maybe in every investigation, part of the investigation is what's necessary to eliminate dumping. Now, the interest, the, or eliminate injury, the interesting concept is that would probably come out of the ITC rather than out of commerce. The ITC is what examines injury, is the agency that examines injury. So how would they determine it? They don't look at pricing issues in general. 
The other issue we were asked to discuss that also falls into the lesser duty to some extent is impose a public interest test. Look at whether or not it is in the public interest to impose duties. How do you determine that? If you look at the macroeconomic impact, as has been mentioned earlier, every study shows on a macroeconomic level it is not in the public interest to impose duties. So that being the test would not work, not if you want to keep anti-dumping in existence as a system. So how do you measure what the public interest is? And then what do you do? Now, Canada has merged the two concepts. They look at the public interest test, and if they find there's a public interest in having something less than all of the duty, they impose the lesser duty rule. Again, in a black hole, so it's a little hard to know exactly what they're measuring there. But it's another way to measure. So how do you measure? What's, how do you define the public interest? Again, as I say, on a macroeconomic level, you would eliminate anti-dumping altogether, as any economist will tell you. But on a, do you look at it more micro? Do you look at it job creation versus job loss? Well, that's going to be an issue area in speculation. All these are difficult ones to come up with. And I think that's why we all look more towards a prospective system. It's, it's a more, we know where we're going with that to some extent. And with that, I'm going, since we're running late, I'm going to turn it over to my other panelists. Thanks very much. Uh, that leads rather neatly into two points that I want to make. They both have to do with consuming industries and competitiveness uh, in the United States. First of all, um, as Dan mentioned, I wear several hats, as many of us do. Um, I am counsel to CTAC, and CTAC's been very active in trying to reform the trade laws. We've actually won some battles over the years, including the infamous Byrd Amendment, which um, was repealed in, uh, in 2006. Um, still is around uh, in its vestigial form. Uh, money is still being distributed. Um, but uh, in any event, um, CTAC has published a list of nine um, major provisions of dumping and countervailing duty that um, benefit or uh, don't benefit consumers. We've measured those benefits uh, in major trading uh, countries that have anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws, United States, China, European Union, Canada, Mexico. Nine attributes, so a perfect score, a perfect pro-consumer score, if you will, is nine. Um, Mexico actually has a score of nine. Um, Canada has eight, the European Union a score of six. China has a score of four, and the United States has a score of two. Um, bringing up the rear uh, by a wide margin. Least consumer-friendly trade laws uh, of any major trading nation. Now, this, I think, is shameful. It's a disgrace. Um, and it hurts us, and I'll explain uh, why in detail in a moment. But the nine, um, just, to, just to list them, because Peggy talked about several of these, uh, consuming industry standing, that's one. Uh, Mexico's the only one that has that of these major countries. Public interest test, consideration of the benefits and harms of imposing uh, anti-dumping remedies. Every country but the United States has that in some form. 
The lesser duty rule, same thing. Every country but the United States has some form of lesser duty rule. Suspension of duties in conditions of short supply or emergency. Every country but the United States has such a provision. Uh, zeroing in investigations, nobody does that now since the United States abandoned it in 2007. In reviews, as we heard, the United States uh, continues to use it. There are two other countries that use it in some form. China and the European Union, those are reviews uh, because they have a prospective system. Um, prospective collection of duties, the United States is alone among the major trading countries. Uh, distribution of duties, that's the Byrd Amendment uh, to private parties. Only the United States uh, ever did that, and it's bringing, it's bringing it to an end. And finally, uh, the deduction of anti-dumping duties from export price or CEP. And that's one where the United States does not do it, but China and the European Union do it. So the United States isn't totally unique. www.ctac.info. You can look up the chart, and I'd be happy to hear from you uh, your thoughts on that. Um, so the United States has a long way to go. Why does it matter for, uh, to care so much about consuming industries? Well, as has been repeated many times, I'll just reiterate it very quickly. The United States is in a global economy. It's not the world of 1921. Uh, it's the world of 2011. We need foreign markets for our products, and we need foreign markets for our supplies. Full stop. We can't do without them. And in many cases, they can't do without us, but that's the way we are. Now, what happens when a company can't get what it needs, can't get its inputs, its raw materials? It's fine to say dumping orders affect 2% of imports. What's the real story? The real story is companies leave when they can't get what they need at a reasonable price, at a globally competitive price. I think there are four major things that companies look at. And I talk to a lot of companies uh, on a regular basis about this when they're trying to decide where to build the next model or the next product. Trade restrictions, actual or threatened. What happens if I get hit with a dumping case? They care about that. They don't care whether they've already been hit. They care what, what would happen if they got hit. Two, taxation. The United States has some of the highest corporate tax rates in the world. That matters. Three, excessive regulation. We hear about it all the time. Everybody who's regulated thinks they're excessively regulated. Okay? It's subjective to a certain extent. But you look at what's available in the world. And if you find a better deal, most companies will take it. And the fourth, of course, is litigation. There's been a couple of recent Supreme Court cases that have uh, um, helped in that area a little bit. But the United States is known, justly, as a place where litigation runs rampant. Okay, that's why companies leave. I think trade restraints, including anti-dumping, is one of the big four reasons that companies move offshore. Okay, when they go offshore, they get a better deal. Now, um, I part company a little bit with Gary. Gary was talking about some specific practices that country, other countries use. My concern is these major issues that do balance interests. That's what companies look for. Do they balance the interests? Now, um, why don't people in Washington understand this? Because they don't. It's obvious that they don't. 
They don't understand it because those companies don't come here to explain why they're leaving. They leave. They're not going to lobby. They're just going to go where they can uh, get an immediate um, uh, satisfactory result. Okay? Now, this is about the global economy. The modern world has many more attractive options than it used to. And so many more companies are looking worldwide for where to build that next model. And while we're trying to double exports in five years, other countries are getting better at attracting investment. So we have to get better too. That's the only answer. And reforming these laws is one of the imperatives to doing that. Okay? Now it fails, uh, uh, it falls to those interested in the process, um, which thankfully includes groups like Cato, to shed light on these pressures, um, which we as advisors to companies see every day, and draw the attention of decision makers to the consequences of those policies. If we don't, we're just going to lose more and more activity and more and more jobs. Now, um, that is why trade restraints need to be uh, looked at. And that brings me to the issue of, of FTZs. Um, how many of you know what an FTZ is? Foreign trade zone. Okay, about half of you. That's that's a good start. Um, it's a it's an area every country in the world virtually has them. There are areas where customs laws don't apply. They're just apart from the normal commerce of a country, and uh, you can bring goods in there without paying duty or making a formal entry. Um, and then you can process them and export them. Some countries allow you to import the processed product. The United States is one of those. Um, and um, uh, but uh, every every country has little different rules. Now they're a safety valve. Our watchword at the NAFTZ, which I helped make up, is if you can do it there, you ought to be able to do it here in a foreign trade zone. Okay? If you can use an input that would be subject to dumping if it entered the United States commerce, then don't turn that business away. Let that input be used here under carefully controlled conditions. That's what the FTZ program is about. Um, it is um, an area fraught with controversy. Companies that have anti-dumping orders don't like this. And I, don't, I, I understand why they don't like it. But somebody's got to take a look at what's good for the country and not just good for one anti-dumping petitioner. And that's what the Foreign Trade Zones program allows. There's an agency that makes these decisions. Unfortunately, the agency is housed in the import administration. <clears throat> but at least it's got that job to do. And uh, you know, we, we want to expand that. And we want to make sure that the Foreign Trade Zones board, when they look at these cases, looks at what you can do overseas. And do you want to prevent that from being done here? Um, we think that the answer is uh, obvious. Uh, trade restrictions, when applied to manufacturing inputs, and by the way, Dan is exactly right. I looked at the orders currently in effect. 84% of those orders are on intermediate goods, goods that U.S. manufacturers use and have to have competitive prices. Okay, not final goods. Only about 16% of orders are on final goods. Okay, half the orders are on steel products. They're automatically intermediate goods. So this is a problem that really needs to be addressed. If an economic result can be obtained offshore, 
the same result should be obtainable in the U.S., creating jobs and economic activity. To be fair, this is not um, uh, a one-sided debate, okay? Um, in, uh, in GSP or in, uh, uh, in duty suspension, you know, the, the, the Manufacturing Act, you didn't get in that bill if there was anybody that raised a stink. That's one of the problems with, with duty suspension practice in Congress. If anybody objects, the bill, you know, that provision is out. In this, there has to be a balancing of interests. There's going to be a producer who got an anti-dumping order and a consumer who needs access to that input. And somebody's got to figure out where the national interest lies. But it doesn't automatically lie with the dumping petitioner. Not when you're looking to create jobs and economic activity in the United States. So that's what we've been doing. Now, this is a very current issue. The National Association of Foreign Trade Zones is the leading trade association that deals with zone issues in the United States. Um, there are many other associations around the world. The Foreign Trade Zones Board recently proposed massive uh, comprehensive changes to its regulations. First time since 1991. We're in the comment process now. Just yesterday, uh, we filed reply comments um, to, the, uh, to the Foreign Trade Zones Board. So there's well over 100 comments uh, that were uh, filed in May. There's probably going to be another 100 that were filed yesterday. We haven't even counted them up yet. Uh, but the due date was yesterday. So don't go out and file comments today. It's too late. Um, but uh, they are publicly available on regulations.gov. If you, unlike me, can figure out how to use that website. Um, but uh, uh, they are there. They're available. And the Foreign Trade Zones Board also will um, uh, have them available on, on their website. So you don't have to go to regulations.gov. Um, it's a very important, critical issue. It's not just dumping uh, all kinds of trade restrictions. Um, we need the flexibility to attract business, to attract investment, to attract jobs to the United States, regardless of restraints that people have gotten, if the national interest uh, requires it. And that is really what the, uh, the Foreign Trade Zones program is all about. Thanks very much. All right, Marguerite. Thank you. Well, at this point, good evening, everybody. Uh, <laughs> um, I think there's a reason they saved me for last. You know, they figured by now you all would be getting a little tired. Um, and I'm basically here to talk about an issue that deals a lot more with the process of administering a dumping order and a lot less about the technicalities of uh, actually calculating a dumping margin. Actually, it has nothing to do with calculating a dumping margin. So the issue that I'm going to talk about, I like to think of, it's, it's really kind of the low-hanging fruit. I mean, if you want to change, you want reform, and you want reform that everybody can believe in, then the prospective dumping assess duty assessment system is for you. This this really is a win-win issue. This should be change we can all get behind because a prospective system, and I'll explain how, a prospective system will give importers the predictability they need and the ability to trade fairly and be confident in those trades. It will give domestic producers who have sought dumping orders 
all the protection that they need or in, and are entitled to under an order. It will give them enhanced duty collection at the border. So, and it will make U.S. businesses more competitive by giving everyone the information they need to make sound business decisions that are going to make U.S. businesses more competitive worldwide. So what's not to like, right? Everybody should be behind this. So uh, Peggy already gave you a, a very able a, a, um, summary of our current retrospective system. I'd just like to add uh, two brief points on that. Um, when I call it the investigate, estimate, and litigate system. Um, but it's important to understand that the way commerce's system works now, when they calculate dumping margins in an investigation or a review, um, importers and exporters get access to that information. So they understand something about how the dumping was calculated. And you would say, well, then that should give them some guidance on how to price and trade fairly. Well, that would be true if, if unlike what uh, Peggy explained, that this, the result of that process was more than just an estimate of what a fair price is. But unfortunately, it is just an estimate. And when the Commerce Department gets to the point of actually determining the final assessment rate, they do the investigation and the litigation and everything all over again. And not only do they do it all over again, they don't have to do it the same way. So the way they did it in the investigation or the prior review to come up with that deposit rate that was supposed to tell the world approximately what a fair price was can all go out the window. And parties spend a lot of money digging up new information, new surrogate values in China cases, and relitigating these issues all over again. And trust me, they can make a huge difference in a margin enough of a difference to bankrupt one furniture company in a small southern state that I won't mention, but anyway. So, and these are not, these are not rate advances that are falling on companies that are bad actors. These aren't companies that are trying to cheat. These are companies that are just trying to do business. They're trying to make a decision about where they should source their products where they should buy the inputs they've needed, which is why, as everyone has said before, this is very, very much a competitiveness issue. So what do you need to make a sound business decision? You need information, right? Like the guy in whatever, uh, what was the movie? <laughs> yeah. um, said, you know, information is power. Information is the currency, right? What you need to give US businesses, both importers, and export, well, exporters, U.S. importers, and U.S. consuming industries, and U.S. producing industries who bring, bring uh, dumping cases, you need to give them information. What do you need to tell them? You need to tell them what a fairly traded price is. The irony of the U.S. system is that it, we collect volumes of data, we spend 18 months doing dumping calculations and holding hearings and then defending those decisions in court. And at the end of the day, 
we might throw it all away and turn around and assess duties on some entirely new basis. So that whole process doesn't tell the business community anything. And it doesn't tell them the one thing they want to know, which is, tell me what a fair price is, and I'll pay it. And not only that, but don't tell me three years later, after you've done a review and you've been through court litigation, don't suddenly tell me then that the price that I paid three years before was a dumped price. If you had told me at the beginning, at the time when I actually had to make the purchasing decision, what a fair price was, I might have bought, surprise, surprise, from the US manufacturer. Because I would have known that what the foreign producer was offering me was a dump price. And I could do the calculation, say dump price, duties, no, no, no. It's not as good a deal. The, American, the deal from the US producer is a better deal. So that's why, and, and that is exactly what a prospective system is all about. Oops, sorry, losing my belt here. Uh, a prospective system is really all about providing information when it matters and when it makes sense and when it can be effective. And that is you provide that information before the import occurs. You tell everybody up front not what was a fair value three years ago, but what is a fair value today. And not only do you tell them that, but you make sure that they can take it to the bank, that you're not, without notice, going to retroactively change that number on them. You can change it prospectively if circumstances change in the market, prices and costs change. But you don't change it retroactively. So basically, you give everyone the information they need, you give them the rules of the road, and then they go about and do their business. And they trade fairly. And the reality is 90%, 98% of all US businesses are going to be very interested in trading fairly. They want the best deal they can get, but they don't, they're not interested, really, in unfair trade. They don't need the problems. Companies are very risk averse. They're very problem averse. Tell them what the price is, they'll make the decision, okay? They won't even fight with you very much over what you decide the fair price is, which is good news for bad business, bad news for the trade bar. So, which, you know, you can take that for what, you know, and factor that into why we don't yet have a prospective system. But, as Peggy pointed out, too, remember, we are the only ones that don't. We are the only country that does not have a prospective system. Not definitive proof, but it certainly is enough evidence to suggest that maybe the US should take a very hard look at this system. So what, what, how exactly, or what, what are we, we would think of as sort of the hallmarks of a prospective system? There are a couple of different types of prospective systems. One is what they uh, just call a prospective ad valorem system, where you just set the percentage, the ad valorem rate. Um, That's what the EU does. They just determine what the ad valorem rate is, and then basically they close up shop and they leave it in place for five years and don't do much with it. Um, the other type of system, which is used by places like Canada and Australia and New Zealand, is a prospective normal value system. Normal value is the term we use in dumping parlance for 
the fair price, you know, whatever is going to be considered a fair price. I feel like my, my five-year-old grandson, he, told, he, he announced the other day that he speaks English in three languages. He's English Yoda and Master Yoda. So when I start talking about normal values and constructed values, I feel a little bit like that. Um, so anyway, so, so that's the basic idea. What the Commerce Department would do is exactly like what it's doing right now in investigation re and reviews in terms of calculating the dumping margin. Unless somebody can make some of the, the other changes that uh, the prior panelists were talking about, that's fine. But this doesn't require that. This doesn't require that. Very simple. Don't have to touch anything. You know, 75% of the statute will be totally untouched if you make this change. Because it has nothing to do with how you calculate the margin. It is only about what you do once you've done it. And you've said, and commerce has to do this in every single case, it has to calculate a normal value for every product category. And it does this. So all you're saying in a prospective system is, okay, tell the exporters that, and tell them that that is the benchmark you will use when they sell products into the United States, unless and until that benchmark changes. They can count on that being a fair price. So if you decide the normal value is $100, if they sell at $100 or more, when those goods cross the border, they don't pay any duties. Here's a good part for petitioners. If they do sell them at $90, when those goods cross the border, they pay $10 cash on the barrel head on the day that the goods enter. You don't have all the enforcement issues and collection issues associated with trying to come back and find people three years later. Not only that, but you move it into the normal customs entry process. It becomes much simpler. It becomes much more cost effective from a government standpoint. So basically what you have is in a prospective system, you have attributes that are good for business. They provide the predictability and the in information that business needs to be competitive and do business without an army of lawyers following them around. So it's good for business. It's good for government. The GAO has estimated that the retrospective element in our system has cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars in lost duties a year. It is admittedly by the Commerce Department far more cumbersome and resource intensive to administer. So it's a good government choice. So it's good for government and it's good for business. So I think this is a very win-win proposal and it's just an itty bitty change. Don't need to change much. So this truly is the low hanging fruit. And I hope that, you know, you, some of you have already heard me give this pitch. I hope I won't have to be boring everybody to death with it for too much longer, but I'm going to keep at it. Thank you. Thanks, Marguerite. Thanks to the panel. Are there questions for anybody? Uh, Sam, wait for the microphone, please. Uh, this question is based on a totally unscientific uh, review of anti-dumping uh, decisions, and it's probably heresy in this church, but um, it seems to me that over the last few years, the dumping margins on anti-dumping cases have been a lot lower for mandatory uh, respondents, that uh, in many cases it's single digit. Uh, and I understand the chilling effect of all this, but and there's some recent cases um, at the appellate court where you're 
they're going to have even stricter rules against uh, adverse information and labor costs. So those margins may come down even further. And every time you have a ruling, uh, it's appealed uh, to the CIT. So, uh, and at the end of the day, you have a U.S. trade deficit in manufacturing of over $500 billion. So um, my question, even though you're saying 2% is affected by trade and companies, again, is three zeros, companies, usually, importers usually raise their prices to the dumping margin so they can avoid the margin, knowing that uh, they just price to the margin. Uh, so my question really comes to, how, how do you say this is such a really negative impact on U.S. business, U.S. trade? Um, it, it sounds like a lot less even than 2%. Well, I, I can't speak to the margins and whether there's actually a trend that's been going down. I haven't been involved in any specific uh, cases. But uh, two years ago, there were a lot of – there were 24, I think, anti-dumping cases in 2009 and maybe 12 at CBD, or maybe I'm mixing up the non-China versus China. Um, U.S. importers uh, – 55% of U.S. imports are components of production. 80% of these cases, 84 according to Lewis, uh, his latest assessment, are on uh, imported are on uh, intermediate goods. There is this focus on U.S. competitiveness, and part of that focus has been manifest in this national export initiative. Some of which I think makes some sense. I think it makes sense to streamline export controls and have trade agreements. A lot of it, I think, is superfluous and a waste of money, like hand-holding, uh, you know, marketing uh, trips abroad and uh, subsidizing exports and things like that. Uh, but I think that the, 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 we need to recognize that we're – one of the ways to make sure that we're competitive here and abroad is by keeping our input prices lower. We are in a global economy. So to dismiss dumping by saying, eh, it only affects a little bit and the margins aren't that great, I mean – that you are dismissing a serious injustice to the companies, and you're, if, you, if we're looking for ways to be competitive, let's not, let's not overlook this regime. Every time over the years that we've, we've just had this discussion, people say, well, it's impossible. You know, it's a, it's a producer's law. It's like some sacrosanct thing that, that, that can't be addressed. Uh, why? I don't, uh, so my, my response is it's, it's, a, it's a major cost, and we, we need to try to do something to remedy it. Uh, if I can add to that, I, I think um, this problem can't be both vital and trivial at the same time. Um, if it is vital that petitioners have an avenue to redress this comprehensive assault on them, uh, which, they, which they claim, uh, then it's important enough to achieve a result, which is itself important. It can't be important to them and trivial to everybody else. Um, it, is, it is important. I think uh, um, what we have been talking about uh, at CTAC uh, are reforms that do not get rid of anti-dumping, but make it more predictable. I think the retrospective system has to go in order to achieve predictability. There's several other things we've been uh, looking at, and I've listed some of them uh, on the chart. But the basic bottom line is it is important. Um, and keep in mind, the numbers that you keep looking up, and I encourage you to keep looking them up, aren't duties. They don't mean anything. They're numbers on a piece of paper that reflect the deposit that an importer has to make in order to get into the market, and then he could get an 800% duty at the end of next year on that product that he's already sold. Now, how many people are going to do that? 
Not many. Not if they have another market they can sell it to. So that's the perspective system. That's the whole point of it. Um, those numbers, whether they're going up or down, and I frankly haven't studied it, those numbers are not the story. I think the story is that uh, they create tremendous uncertainty. They create an, a bubble of non-competitive prices and costs in the United States, which companies react to. And they react to it by voting with their feet. Uh, yeah, Dan. Dan Porter. Marguerite, just a, a quick follow-up question. On those countries that have the perspective system now, you said there's a bunch of have called a normal value perspective system. Are Do they give normal values by product category, or is it a single weighted average? Um, well, the one I'm most familiar with is the Canadian system, but they, they actually do normal values by product category. The same way, I mean, you have to do it the uh, same way we have to do it anyway for to calculate a dumping margin. Um, and actually, if you think about it, everybody has to do it at least in the investigation stage if for no other reason than to calculate an overall weighted average margin and apply a de the de minimis rule. So, But basically, on the Canadian system, they do it, and then they have their equivalent of an all-others rate, which is going to be... you. They have some flexibility there to sometimes do an ad valorem rate or to do... Uh, a weighted average sort of normal value uh, to apply to all others. So, mm -hmm. Matt? Um, Marguerite, on the um, prospective issue, the, we, I agree with everything you said. It would be great if we could change the policy altogether. I wonder, though, one, one of the petitioner's strongest arguments is that the anti-dumping agreement of the WTO requires company uh, countries to allow you to get a refund if you have overpaid, turning what we're calling a prospective system into a hybrid prospective retrospective system because it allows this, this uh, the, allows for refunds and must allow for refunds. Uh, do you think we're, we need to change the anti-dumping agreement as well? Uh, well, I think there's a misunderstanding of what that refund process is all about. If you, there's nothing in the anti-dumping agreement that says that if someone, if you have a normal, if you've established normal value and someone sells below that normal value, so you have your $100 normal value and they come in at 90 and you charge them $10. Well, under that system, there is no such thing as overpaying. You haven't overpaid what your dumping margin is. What they do have a process for, though, is um, sometimes it's done as part of a customs compliance review where they may review an, an importer, or it can be almost like what we would think of as a customs protest. Because remember, the, all of these systems, the entry process is essentially voluntary. It's up to the importer to actually declare the goods and say what the rate is. That's true in our system and any system. So really what the agreement provides for is if the, if, if the customs officials, say, for example, have applied the wrong normal value to an entry, or the importer did. I mean, but if they, it, they do do this, I know, in the Canadian states. If they, for some reason, applied the wrong normal value upon entry, the importer can go back and they can request a review if they can prove that the, actually the wrong normal value was applied. And then they get a refund. 
So, and similarly, if, if customs does a compliance review, much like customs can do here anyway, if the importer has not properly declared the merchandise, not properly declared the normal value, then customs can go back, just like customs here would, and, and correct the fact that they've done an improper entry. But the bottom line is if you have set the rule and you've set the normal value and you apply and you abide by that rule, then you, you'll stick with it. There is no such thing as under or overpaying. You're going to pay exactly what you owe. Eric, right there. One question. <clears throat> Eric Solonen again, Stuart and Stuart. Um, on retro, retrospective versus prospective uh, uh, the system. Oops, sorry. <laughs> I apologize. That was because my car is going to be locked up at 7 o'clock. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, the question I've got, though, is is the fact that the dumping margin that's established in an investigation is based on sales that were made or, or entries that were made um, either 12 months before the petition was filed in the case of a market economy country or six months in the case of an enemy. So right there you have a dumping margin that is based on sales that occurred some time ago. You have no idea what's, what's occurred to the import prices uh, or changes in costs, changes in prices, while the investigation is still ongoing or after the order goes into effect. And so what you're talking about here is basically a trade-off of a system whatever the, the, the disadvantages may be in terms of the time, does endeavor to ensure that there's an accurate margin versus the convenience to importers and businesses of having some certainty that is based on outdated, uh, outdated sales. And the other question, I, and then the question I have is, is how does particularly at a period when we see commodity prices going, going up and up and up almost without, without, without end. If the import in question is based on some sort of a commodity and the price has gone up, but they're still paying a margin that is based on sales that occurred before the petition was filed, where's the effectiveness in terms of the, uh, the, the effectiveness in terms of the, the, the uh, effectiveness for the domestic industry? Okay. Um, well, I'll take this in two parts. First, I'll tell you about how the prospective systems I do know something about deal with that. And then maybe some more general comments on the whole issue of accuracy in the dumping law. Um, first of all, under the prospective normal value system like the Canadian system, you have, they have a process where they review the normal values, so you update the normal values. Just like you, and so you, just like we update assessment rates, we apply them retroactively, but the cash, they become the cash deposit rate prospectively. Um, so you can, you can update it. Not only that, but there is an obligation. Exporters have an obligation. They are given their full calculation when they, when the dumping investigation is done. They know exactly how the calculation was done. If there is any material change that would affect the normal value, they are an obligation, under an obligation to report that, to disclose that. 
So the government always has the option. I mean, they can wait for a normal review process to take hold and, and fix that and make the adjustment. They also have the discretion sometimes to do a review out of time if they feel that the circumstances warrant. So you can build a system that takes into account changes in costs. But also remember, you know, I know Obviously, you work a lot with petitioning domestic industries, and their concern is when costs always go up. Costs sometimes go down, you know, and dumping margins historically go down over time. So, in fact, the vast majority of them do. So the reality is that the prospective normal value system, it's not perfect, nor is the one we have right now. But at least it's, it is more balanced. Sometimes it's going to work to uh, maybe briefly for some brief period of time. It may benefit a respondent or some brief period of time. It may benefit a petitioner. But it's a rolling process. I think what you have to do is you have to step back and you say, overall, on balance, does it work better? And my last point about accuracy is, remember, we all talked about the fact that there are so few companies actually investigated or reviewed. When I first came to the department 15 million years ago, we, tip, we routinely did 10 companies, 15 companies. Didn't matter. I, I'm not quite sure what happened, why there, we got to the magic number of three. You know, uh, somewhere along the line, we went down. Now I think it's shrinking to two. But what that tells you is the vast majority of imports are being subject to an all-weathers rate. They're being a subject to a rate that has absolutely nothing to do with the price or cost of the exporter, nothing. So I think that, you know, I understand the arguments about accuracy and people try their best, but let's be honest. You know, this is not, this is a blunt instrument at best. It is not a precision tool. So accuracy, to the extent that it's achievable, is important. But it's not the be-all and end-all when there's so, so many other costs and factors to be taken into account. Well, every country other than every country in the world that has had to make this decision, Eric, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a trade-off between accuracy and, um, and predictability. That's true not only of anti-dumping duties, but of most uh, most tax systems and most most things in life. Um, every country in the world, except one, has made the choice that predictability is important um, and has done what it can to ensure accuracy. And there are many choices that we could make, and they're not necessarily the choices that other countries have made to work on accuracy, to make the, the results more accurate, to have reviews requested as they are now by both sides of the equation, by the importer, the foreign producer, by the petitioner. Why not? It's just that the results of that review would be applied prospectively. Um, so I think that in, in the last analysis, since every other country in the world has had this choice, necessarily had to make this choice, they made it. They've made it in the sense that uh, predictability is vitally important to their competitiveness and their economy. Uh, I think there's nothing about the United States that makes us different qualitatively. There may be something that makes us different politically, but not qualitatively. Um, I think it's a good choice. It's one that we ought to seriously consider. 
and work on narrowing the gap between uh, the perceived um, inaccuracy and predictability. And in fact, uh, as Marguerite points out, they're not that accurate. Uh, not only um, the cases where all others rate are charged, look at non-market economy rates. They're notoriously uh, inaccurate and, uh, and unpredictable. And, um, you know, there's, uh, uh, there's really very few that are, that are meticulously uh, accurate. And also, not to mention the uh, discussion in panel two, all the things that the Commerce Department does that uh, sacrifice accuracy for some other agenda. Uh, or appear to. So I, I think it's it's a legitimate issue, but I, I think we can work together on it. Yeah, we, one, we, can I make one yeah, other go ahead, point? Yeah, sure. Please. One other point is is when companies make their purchasing decisions, the, for the whether to purchase from the domestics, the imports, or whatever, they're making those purchasing decisions based on deposit rates, which are estimates. They can't make the decision based on something that's decided three years after they purchase it. Therefore, the purchasing decisions are always based on estimates rather than accurate final numbers. Let me, let me just, uh, we're, we're pretty much out of time, but I just want to give Lewis the opportunity to comment a little bit more on the foreign trade zones for a second. In the paper that we, we published on May 31st, I tell the story of uh, Dow Corning, who's you know big big U.S. manufacturer, and they make a lot of high-tech products, heavily dependent on silicon metal. There's an anti-dumping order on Chinese silicon metal, which, by the way, simultaneously, the USTR is suing the Chinese government in the WTO over its export restrictions of the same raw material. So go figure that. Uh, but um, Dow Corning was applied for a subzone, a foreign trade subzone, uh, because it, wants, it needs to compete with Chinese producers of silicon used for solar panels and things like that. Uh, but the, the subzone was, the request was was denied, and I'm curious to know, you know, what what happened in that case, and what 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 what, what arguments came to bear, and uh, should we expect the similar arguments going forward? Uh, we need to find a way to allow the, this compromise to work out. Well, that particular case dealt with uh, with exports. In other words, uh, Dow Corning was not applying for. Um, foreign trade zone status so they could make products from silicon metal subject to dumping and then import those products into the U.S. Go get your cars. We understand. I'm sorry. I really I apologize. Don't apologize. Your car is more important. <laughs> Just like predictability is more important than accuracy, your car is more important than listening to what I say. <laughs> um, so that... Uh, Basically, the, um, the Foreign Trade Zones Board didn't deny the application, but it said that uh, because of the volume of silicon that was proposed to be used, they would require um, entry and duty payment on merchandise that was subject to, to dumping, and that, that meant that the, the dumping duties would have to be paid. Dow Corning is obviously looking for other places and other ways to, um, to use this product, and they've got plenty of choices. Um, so I think from a public policy standpoint, um, and you know the NAFTZ was involved uh, in the case is uh, is silly, but um, that's where it is right now. And we want to make sure that these new regulations don't enshrine that result in regulations and apply it to all cases. It's it really should only apply where there's a very egregious example. And and in defense of the Foreign Trade Zones Board, they found uh, you know the volume was so 
great of the silicon that was proposed to be used that it could have an effect on the market price even though the final product was going to end up in foreign markets. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be exported to foreign markets from someplace else. That's the basic. Okay. Thank, thanks for the elaboration. Anything else? All right. I guess the, the meeting is adjourned. We can go upstairs and uh, have some refreshments and continue the conversation. Thanks for your endurance. I know it's been hot in here, and I appreciate you coming to our event. Anybody Thanks wants to the consumer-friendly trade laws chart, I got some <laughs> copies right here. I found, I found them already.